Hello, listeners. This is your host, Clara Shirley Appel. A few months ago, I recorded an interview with the queer Jewish anti-Zionist poet Sam Sachs. I, too, am queer, Jewish, and opposed to Zionism. Our conversation precedes the events of the past few weeks, so we don't talk about the current situation or explain in any depth what those identities mean to us. But we are both deeply disturbed by what Israel is doing in Gaza right now, and we felt it was important to show up to the world as anti-Zionist Jews in every way that we can. For that reason, I am sharing this episode with you a little sooner than I normally would. Before I do, I want to share one other thing with you. It's a poem of Sam's that we didn't discuss in the interview called Everyone's an Expert in Something, one that articulates their feelings, which I share, about what it means to be Jewish when you oppose Zionism. For all those who are watching what's happening right now with horror, I hope this poem helps you remember that another world is possible. May it be so. The more I learn, the more I learn, I don't know what the f*** I'm talking about. Someone who doesn't care a fig for poetry might think I knew a lot, yet in most bookshops, I'm lost. Shelves heavy with the bodies of forgotten writers. It's relative. A president can say audacity, or a president can say sad, and both eat the slow-cured meat of empire. When I say I carry my people inside me, I don't mean a country. The star that hangs from my neck is simply a way of saying Israel is not a physical place, but can be written down and carried anywhere. It says my people are most beautiful when moving, when movement, when our only state is the liquid state of water is adapting to our container. Homeland sometimes just means what books you've read, what stories you spread with your sneakers. My people, any place you live long enough to build bombs is a place you've lived too long. It's relative. My friends, the only thing I know for sure is the missiles on television are only beautiful if you've never known suffering. My friends, the only country I will ever pledge my allegiance to is your music is under investigation for treason. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is the queer Jewish poet, writer, and educator Sam Sachs. Their debut poetry collection, Madness, won the National Poetry Series competition when it came out, and their second collection, Bury It, won the 2017 James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets. They are the two-time Bay Area Grand Slam champion with poems published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Poetry Magazine, and Granta, to give just a few highlights. Sam has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Poetry Foundation, Yaddo, Lambda Literary, and McDowell, and they are currently serving as an italic lecturer at Stanford University. Sam Sachs, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Hi, thank you for having me. It's it's so nice to finally talk to you. You are, as your bio states, a queer Jewish writer. How do those identities inform your writing, both in terms of what you write about and in terms of how you write it, like form and structure? Love it. Great question um, that I should think about uh, before I answer. I think as far as like queerness as like an identity and ideology and, and a politic are concerned, for me has always presented itself as both like a mode and model of, of resistance to sort of inherited mm. like 
normative formal structure. So like for me, like queerness and writing both has to do with like privileging smut as a kind of like high high art, you know? Yeah. Um, I think one of the first things that brought me to books is just like reading about like filth and desire and that like, there's a space in, in the book that privileges a kind of um, sort of like intimacy and confessional mode of mm. like both like the body and what the body is capable of. And then I think it's also like a, on a formal level, right? Like to queer something is to take an inherited tradition and like make it new yeah, or make it strange, it right? Yeah. And to like speak back toward like um, an inheritance that like in English language literature right is like deeply problematic and so i think there's something about like taking taking the sonnet right which has its like particular complex history right and then like yeah. sort of twisting that to make it a poem about like a, a sex basement that like only has like a sort of handful of um formal resonances with like the sort of original yeah. sonnet but that that also like takes and perverts the form and i also think that queerness is like about uh queer my queer identity and my writing is about speaking to a lineage or tradition, right? Mm. Um, outside of the sort of like nonical English language tradition, but like um, speaking back to sort of a history of of queer writers who've written in the margins and self-published their works, yeah. you know what I mean? And had it in like so. um, pamphlets um, and passing on their writing in secret or outside of the sort of whatever laureled structure of literature. And for me, like my investment in Judaism as like an identity has to do with um, privileging a kind of uh, sort of like diasporic letter and like literature based history of Judaism. Hmm. And so like invested in what it means to be a Jewish person sort of tied to place and that that's where I live, but not like yeah. to landscape or state or like the idea of nation or nationality. And so like being a, as is sometimes termed a people of the book, right? Means yeah. that it's people whose like nation or community, right? Is built around literature and connection instead of um, settler colonialism or statehood. Um, and so for me, it's like important to sort of privilege a relationship to, to Judaism. That's one, both of letters that's anti-capitalist, that's queer and that's like highly visibly anti-Zionist. And like, so making sure that that, that work is, um, sort of explicit both in my identity and in the identity of or like how that identity shows up in the poems yeah absolutely um i'm also a queer anti-zionist jew so <laughs> there's a lot I, of things i think that you described here that sort of resonated with me in this book um yeah. and especially i mean to some extent the the anti-zionist um diasporic bent is less visible here than it is in some of your other work um, but there are still there are still individual poems that sort of get into that, and that I think there's a tradition in literature and in poetry in particular that is diasporic, that is anti-Zionist, and that often gets erased in ways that I think are very similar to the ways that many of the sort of queer traditions that were sort of passed along from person mm. to person also have gotten erased by now that we're sort of in this in this, I guess, present day that where a Zionist tradition is the sort of hegemonic way that a lot of people uh, understand Judaism from the outside. Yeah, which, which I feel like means um, like having that sort of politic be explicit in the work of like contemporary Jewish writers is like not an option, like to not address it, I think yeah. is like a uh, collusion. Yeah. 
There's something very corporeal and very embodied about the poems in this collection. Some of that, I think, is the subject matter, the association of pigs with mud and filth, their sort of corpulent nature, and so on. But in some places, it feels more personal. I'm thinking, for example, of the poem Lisp, which emphasizes the physicality of language. What is that focus on the physical about for you? And what is the embodied experience of writing and performing poetry like for you? I feel like for me, the poem is a space to navigate between like history, um, various like organizational structures that we have to navigate and the experience of embodiment, um, right? Because I think that's how language comes to us, right? It's like, it's mm. an inheritance. It's one that moves through our body. And it's one that when we we speak it, we make it, we make it new and we can change the world around us, right? I think uh, our histories, our various histories and structures around us are built through language, right? And so then mm. it's this this tool that we have that we can use to shape the world around us. Um, and also is this object, right, that informs and shapes the structures and identities of our lives. Hmm. So with the poem like Lisp, for example, right, it's borrowing its formal structure from these scansion forms I had to fill out as a child, right? Or yeah. I had to, I don't know, my parents like clocked me as like a swishy little boy. And so they're <laughs> like, you, your lisping now is cute, but when you grow into like a full-fledged homosexual, it's going to be embarrassing, right? So let's like train you in how mm. to speak properly, right? So I think that poem sort of borrows this sort of loose training mechanism in order to like think through how language both informs our identity and affects how we like move through the world so that's one piece and i think the other thing is about um the poem as a a site of exploring where the experience of embodiment rubs up against the world around us right and particularly where those two things collide and don't make sense so like an experience of disgust or desire Hmm. or you know famine or ravagement uh that like doesn't line up with how the world tries to structure your experience i mean i'm really interested in the poem as a site of sort of teasing out um that sort of unknowable collision hmm. and i think like the fragmentary syntactical imperative of poems right which like privilege language um yeah. and the sort of um and language on a really kind of nitty-gritty level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like particularly that corrupt or, or pervert the tradition of like of sense or syntax, right? Like that a poem can sort of reflect the complex experience of embodiment without needing to necessarily say it plainly across a, mm -hmm. a narrative chronological sentence um, is the thing that I think poetry does best, right? Reflects yeah. back or it teases out the sort of breath of the poet, right? And then so you're re when you're reading, you're reading alongside the, the breathing and the embodied experience of a person. So yeah, I don't know. I've always been interested in like the muck and the mire and the yuck <laughs> of experience, you know? And I think that like is the thing that's always sort of drawn me to, to reading. Mm -hmm. Like I loved filthy books as a child. And then I built like a whole... I don't know, academic career trying to like justify that <laughs> <laughs> and try to be like, oh, here is the sort of um, liberatory or reparative sort of qualities of of like of filth and perversion. OK, and then the other the other piece around like uh, the performance of a poem is like in my like early life, that was some of the most transformative experience, like uh, art, like artistic experience for me, just being an audience member, hearing people like say their poems there's something like incantatory yeah. about it 
there's something um, in the confessional of like lived and embodied experience where the the connection of the lyric to the speaker is um, is indelible, right? Like you can't yeah. like separate it, even if it's like a persona poem or something. There's something about like a human breathing. Yeah, I think that's a place where like the the connection of breath between a performer and an audience member feels most alive and electric. Um, is like listening to somebody shape and craft a particular complex experience um, and make it make it sing or make it beautiful. And then you feel it land inside yourself and are changed by that. Um, okay. And so there's something like deeply embodied to me about this art form in general, that it's about the transmission of breath. It's about the sort of like sharing both mm. like of language and like viruses and bacteria <laughs> in the air as you're saying these words and it's about being changed all by all much things. more aware of now than we were yeah years for ago. sure <laughs> definitely so reading pig i was struck by how tightly planned it feels almost like mm. it, it has a real narrative structure to it as a collection how do you approach the process of creating a collection and what was the genesis of this collection in particular and what changed about your understanding of it as it started to come together Love hearing that that's how this book felt to you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on this book for six years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, just about. I guess when my last book came out, I was like writing all these poems about gender, men, surveillance and policing, desire, Judaism, right? Um, and then I think my friend Hugh, the poet human win, like pointed me toward the, the sort of like un umbrella category that they all lived in, which is like, there's the pig, right? Mm -hmm. And all of those things are like, all those things, you know, are tangentially under that that category or some sort of iteration of pig, you know? Yeah. And then around that time, I also like was having like little coffee cigarette breaks in back of this hardware store in Brooklyn where there was this pig named Franklin who would just like be sitting there. And so I would just like smoke and like look at the pig and commune with this pig. And so those two things sort of came together and I was like, all right, what would like a deep research project or practice look like that focuses on the pig as a lens to like think through both like the history of policing agriculture desire and how that how the pig sort of like shaped like conceptions of the pig and the actual like rearing and domestication of the pig shaped the evolution of the human being right or understanding yeah. of humanness then the process was just like six years of reading and researching and writing poems i would say this is probably like a a quarter of the poems I like pig poems I wrote made oh, it wow. into the book. Yeah. A lot of them were just iterative drafts or like poems about particular pop cultural pig moments that might not last. Like there's this one poem about the pigs in the fire festival trailer <laughs> for the fire festival, which it like felt like really urgent at the time I wrote it. And then I was like, Ooh, this, this feels, this feels lost already. I don't know if your listeners remember fire festival was like a big <laughs> scam <laughs> that happened and a bunch of like, rich people got punked and everyone delighted in it. Yeah. So I guess the process of it was mostly accretion and just like trying to think through different ways the pig shows up, both metaphorically in literature and in culture um, and making poems that correspond to that. It was working in sequence and like writing poems that uh, sort of braided a thread together of yeah. like certain ideas that were explored. And then, and then it was just years of like assembling and rearranging and cutting out poems and seeing what what absences were there and then adding new poems to like sort of fill in what felt like was missing in the conversation that I was laying out you know yeah and what are you thinking about when you're doing that sort of assembly and editing like what is the 
Is there a specific thing that you're going for ahead of time? Is there, is it just like a vibe and you know it when you see it? So I, I sort of like settled on the tripartite structure of the straw sticks and bricks. Mm. It's like the scaffolding mechanism for this book pretty early on. And then I knew where I wanted to start and wanted to end, right? Because I think it opens with this history of both like the pig and my interest in the pig. Um, and it closes with this poem about the end of our species. Mm. I think when arranging and rearranging, it's like looking for what's, I think there's a piece of it that feels like putting a mixtape or playlist together and thinking mm. about how like the different poems resonate next to each other, what poems speak across the book, right? Um, yeah. And show up in different places, what the sort of tonal energy of the movement of the book is do poems sort of open with the same gesture and then like using that as a sort of editing tactic to see how like the, the poems come together, the sort of like thematic resonance, like wanting to make sure, I don't know. I was, I, <laughs> I just recorded the audio book for this. Yeah. Um, and it was a wild experience to read it all aloud um, to two strangers. Cause I was like, Ooh, this feels like a lot filthier than I remembered when making it. Right. <laughs> Cause I was just like sitting in the material. And then I was like, when I had to like read it, I think there's a sort of like density of poems about like sex and perversion and desire, which didn't feel odd when I was putting the book together. But I think when I was reading it aloud and like had to had to look at some yeah. strangers while I was reading, I was like, oh, interesting. Like this gives me a sort of new insight into what this book is and what it's doing. I think there's like part of the process that feels intuitive. There's something about sections like that allow you to have um open opening and closure right yeah. like multiple openings and closures in the book that feels fun to me or it gives you the opportunity to to say something for the first time and then to end a conversation i put together like a ton of like chapbooks and zines and stuff and i mm -hmm. think just like a process of like playing has been like really important to me which is similar to editing to me yeah. it's like for you sure. know like editing a poem feels so similar to editing a collection just on a, a different scale. So I'm glad you mentioned research as part of your answer here, because it's it, it's really visible how much research went into this collection. And from reading other interviews with you, I gather that research is a pretty big part of your writing process in general, which is, mm -hmm. is not the case for all poets or I mean, or all writers for that matter. Mm -hmm. What can you say about the role research plays in your poetry? And just because I, I I was curious, what's the most interesting thing you learned about pigs in the course of writing this collection? Oh, gosh. So much. Well, I guess I don't believe that there are writers who don't do research. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think they're like, they just have different research practices, you know? It's like whether it's a sort of internal somatic research practice or like, you know, I don't know, because you're always sort of like mining from an inherited set of experiences and language traditions that you like then shape and make into a poem right yeah. and so i think like i don't know i remember there used to be like early docu poetics conversations right where people were talking mm -hmm. about like poets who do research as if it was an anomaly but i think that may be shifted too with like everyone having a smartphone is like you can mm. always look up anything or respond to materials or information anyways for yeah for me i think it's like largely about deep immersion and sort of shifting my lens of how I view the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, research becomes, like, a way of looking um, and a way of experiencing the world, right? And so doing that with the pig for six years, like, I began to see it everywhere, you know? Yeah. And in part because, like, all my friends knew I was working on this book about pigs, so they would, like, right. send me articles or objects or materials. Like, I've got an altar in the other room filled with 
pick objects and artifacts. <laughs> I think there's a piece of it that's just like, if you sort of shift your orientation to the world, like the the thing you're looking for at floods in, there's this one poem that's like built out of headlines of yes, um, yeah. pigs that I collected over, you know, several years. And so I think just like Googling pig for three or four years, right? Like she ended up showing a lot of wild and sort of strange materials and pig facts. Like there's a science, like I don't think this made it in the book, but there's these like scientists who were, experimenting on if pigs could breathe through their anuses <laughs> and so that was like you know i don't know i guess millions of dollars of research money is like important to this turns out they can i which really is want to exciting. read that grant application yeah for sure <laughs> and i think i mean it's possible that humans can too i think is maybe what they were anyways um so i think i don't know just like a lot of sort of popular science stuff and then a lot of um scholarship i read like a lot of folks who were focusing on like a shipment of pigs in the Weimar Republic, hmm. you know, and how that sort of affected the history of like Germany and the war, or just like the hyper specificity and focus on scholars who do their work on a very narrow subject that pertains to the pig. And I guess a lot of a lot of scholarship around the queer pig as a figure. Yeah. So just yeah, really trying to immerse myself in both like books and popular media, and then just the sort of the loose impulses and whims of what my friends send me. Join KSQD every Monday evening for the award-winning program Peace Talks Radio. News of war, conflict, and political divisiveness fill our media. The Peace Talks Radio series helps counterbalance that with talk about making peace in our daily lives and information on topics that relate to a more peaceful world, locally, nationally, and globally. Peace Talks Radio airs Monday at 6 p.m. here at K-Squid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is the award-winning queer Jewish poet Sam Sachs. Their latest collection, Pig, is a rich meditation on the pig as a lens through which to explore themes as wide-ranging as masculinity, fascism, Jewishness, and desire. Well, I think we should probably hear a little bit from the book. So sure. um, I think the first one you're going to read for us is, a, what, what is it, A Brief and Partial History. Before yeah. you start, can you set it up a little bit and tell us a little about why you selected this poem? Sure. This poem's called A Brief and Partial History. Um, it's the poem that opens the collection. I don't really read it out that often when I've read from the book, which hasn't been that many times thus far. It's a poem that I think like frames and scaffolds the collection a little bit that like collates a bunch of historical information and then um, sort of narrows it down to an experience of like embodiment that sort of explains the like what's urgent about this book, you know, yeah. or like or sets up the framework for the book. A brief and partial history. The first pig wasn't a pig at all, was wild, suscrafa. Practiced cannibalism, coprophagia, was named Darling in the Garden, and evolved from an ear of corn. Eve said pig, and the world was. The first drawing of any animal was made by a man using blood and flowers to throw up the pig on a cave wall. The first meal made from a pig was breakfast. The last meal, supper. The first meal made for a pig was all God's green earth. The acorn orchards planted in jagged rows, the detritus of lesser species. The word pig comes from the Middle English pickbread, meaning acorn. 
but pig existed before we had tongues to name it. Today, we might call them soy and hormone factories. The first book written about pigs was published in 3468 BCE. The last will be this, until it isn't. You who have but one mouth with which to take apart meat, to name yourself and the inherited species, do your work with care as I have tried and failed here. In the beginning, pig offered its body so the world might be built. And when this world ends, pig will inherit. Thank you. You're known in part for poems like this, poems that have this, they're these sort of histories or etymologies molded into mm. a poetic form. Where does that come from for you? And how does exploring those histories, those etymologies through a poetic lens alter your perspective on the events of the past? I love that I'm known for something <laughs> and that it's for that. Holy cow, that's so cool. I didn't realize. Go me. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think often when I'm stuck, I turn to the history of language as a way to get out of um, yeah. a rut in a poem, right? Because uh, like every word sort of carries with it famine and immigration and war, right? Mm. As it like moves across borders in history. And so that always feels like... Um, the inevitable place for the poem to turn, right? Both to like focus on its material and the sort of history of how the language came to us. Gosh, I don't know. You know, I think history forms ev everything, <laughs> you know, everything we do. So like, I think a poem can help us like shape particular historical narratives um, to sort of not explain, but order the present and like yeah. help us see the present a little differently and then like help imagine potentially uh, more like liberatory or livable futures is I guess like the grand hope of that. I don't know. I mean, I think language always carries its history with it. And so like when I'm working on a book like this, which is like invested in the pig as metaphor, um, but also like the literal pig, right? And how it yeah. came to us and how that informs and builds these metaphors, like to to look at the long multi-millennia history of this like living creature as it co-evolved alongside us felt like an important place to start. Why a brief and partial history? What are you trying to convey through that title, either about this poem or about the nature of history more general? Yes, love that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, of the sort of six years worth of research, like this is such a like minor distillation of so much mm. information that like didn't make it into the poem. I think that it's also like a, a claim about about history, right? Or how we speak about the past and like how any reflection of history only offers a sort of fragment, right? Or a partial reading or perspective on it. And so I think like on one level, it's just like there are multiple dense volumes of the history of the pig, right? That like yeah. are their own are their own books. And so I think like this is also making a claim about what the project of this book is, right? And it's not yeah. like an in-depth, poem-by-poem exploration of the pig, right? Um, but more like these like fragments that try to get at painting a whole picture of what it means to be a human being and using the pig as a way of doing that, right? I, I mean, I guess it's also a way of like letting myself off the hook, right? <laughs> <laughs> to say in the first poem that I failed at the project of the book, right? And that yeah. like what's going to follow is just like uh, an attempt or an essay. I, I think there's something really profound about that though because, right, if you aren't 
if you aren't a somebody who is studying history in some kind of full-time capacity, right? Like it's part mm-hmm. of your job. I think the way most of us are exposed to history growing up is as though it is some kind of objective project of mm-hmm. just cataloging facts mm-hmm. when in fact it is very subjective. It is very tempered and filtered through our own lenses. Mm-hmm. So I was really fascinated by that idea of failing at this project because what, is it, what does it mean to fail at a project of history? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, love that. So uh, there's one more question I want to ask you about this poem before we move to the next one. Oh, yeah. cool. There's something almost defiant in, in the ending and in the shift, in particular in the shift from we to you and I in the narration. What mm. can you tell me about that shift? The pivot has to do with a kind of intimacy on the part of the lyric, right? Mm-hmm. And that there's like a relationship between the the reader and the speaker here that um, proffers a kind of intimacy that's like going to hopefully carry throughout the rest of the text. Um, and then it moves from this like larger lens, right, mm. of the the history of the species on this planet to the intimate gesture of this book, right, which mm. is going to be like a kind of... Um, the connection between like speaker and reader, the connection between speaker and beloved, right. That like ideally carries through some of this text. Um, And it's through that intimacy at the end of the poem that we get to this moment of post-humanism that closes it, right. That like for the duration of this book, for the duration of our species, you know, survival on this planet, you know, we're here for such a brief time. Yeah. And one of the arguments of the book, I think, is like privileging that sort of connection and presentness when faced with like almost certain species annihilation. So like how do we like revel in caring for each other in the present before we pivot to the inheritance of like when, you know, other <laughs> yeah. species take over where we failed, you know? Yeah. I really like that. That's yeah, I think that's a, a very moving way to to think through this, these this set, this set of poems. So let's move to the next one. And this is Headlines, which you, you mentioned a little bit earlier. Before you read it, can you set it up a little? So this book, Headlines, I I collected like headlines of poem, of uh, news articles rather, for several years that featured pigs prominently. Um, many of those headlines I took and added into the poem verbatim and others I sort of shifted to make them make sense in the formal structure of the poem. And then there are other other moments in here that aren't headlines, but just like uh, my own sort of contribution to the text. Editorial. Editorial. Let's go. All right. Headlines. Literature is news that stays. Some pig. In an Iowa pork plant, managers bet on how many workers will get the new illness. In Taipei, thousands take to the streets to protest U.S. pork imports. In Missouri, residents worry the new pig farm will damage public lands. In 2030, plant-based pork sales are predicted to surge. In Iowa, new research examines the speed of pneumonia. In Cape Cod, authorities declare dead pig not killed in skater gang ritual. In order to prepare the head for consumption, you must first boil it down to a thick jelly. In some cases, the pandemic spurs automation at the abattoirs. Infertile pigs are put down according to an algorithm. In the year I was born, the pork industry coined the slogan, the other white meat. In the year my family immigrated. In Illinois, a barn fire kills 10,000. In the film, the prom queen responds not well to the pig blood dropped on her from heaven. In a tweet, a man asks, 
How do I kill the 30 to 50 feral hogs that run into my yard within three to five minutes while my small kids play? In the Financial Times, bull market run and lean hog futures still strong. In West Texas, feral sounder upends township. In the 1800s, thousands of pigs roamed wild the streets of Manhattan. In 2018, I do the same. Wild turkey in my jacket, deciding whether to dive into traffic. In 1969, the Yippies run Pegasus. In Santa Rosa, pig blood smeared on the defense witness's door. In my body, I do my best to record plainly the facts of the day. In an Iowa pork plant, seven are fired for betting on how many workers will get sick. In an Iowa pork plant, over 1,000 people contract the illness, leaving at least six dead. In a small city east of here, wild pigs have overtaken the pigs at the police station. In some better future, more wilderness will come do the same. Thank you for reading it. Yeah, sure. It's fun. I've read it aloud once. So <laughs> <laughs> do it again. I think it's really interesting to compare this poem with the first one you read, A Brief and Partial History. Mm-hmm. This poem also tells a history of sorts, but it's one that's largely unfolding in, in something like a present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you collected these over six years, but right. You're sort of each of them is sort of representing an individual moment in, in time. And there are occasional links to the past and at the very end, at least a sort of glimpse of a future. How do you think about time when you're writing a poem like this? Yeah, you know, it wasn't until reading it aloud, I sort of clocked how deeply connected it is to that first poem, mm. both in terms of like laying out a present and a history and imagining a future, like formally very similar with like a pivot at the end that does similar work. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, for this, I don't know, you know, like I just had a Word document filled with these headlines that was yeah. like, this was initially going to be uh, like 10 page poem, right? Where like each headline was given yeah. room to breathe. And then there was going to be sort of interstitial commentary that tied it together. And so I had like a 10 page document that I was working in. Um, and sort of just collecting these and then playing with them just for years. Um, and the, and the poem would change as like new headlines came in. Then it felt too indulgent, you know, uh, to Mm. have it sort of fill up that space. Um, and so I was like thinking how, how might this poem look if it was laid out like, um, like a newspaper article? Yeah, which like formally built that way. Yeah, I think that's an important thing for for listeners to to know about it. It's it's all done in that sort of single column format, justified yeah. alignment, the whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and there's like um, a density and propulsiveness to that that form that felt really really fun when I came to it, you know. And it seemed yeah. to make a lot more sense. Um, and then I don't know, just how I like sort of laid it out had a lot to do with like a sonic sensibility. Um, you know, I wanted it to largely bookend around this particular heinous news story yeah. around like these work plant managers, right? Like having this like fun bet, right? Mm, About mm-hmm. like the very lived horrific experience of um, being forced to work through a global pandemic and um, contracting COVID. And so I wanted that to sort of like frame all of these other, these other news stories, right? Largely yeah. in the present. Some are silly, many are not, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it was like a largely sort of intuitive process about trying to like sort of lay out how these different headlines were in conversation um, and how they felt both like timeless and extremely specific at the same time, right? And then there are some that are like just about the nature of like animal husbandry and others Mm. about like 
head head gelatin for the for pigs and and like oh no i feel like the weirdest sentence in here for me is like the financial times one which is just like so strangely organized and it's like text syntactically that reads like syntactically bizarre to me yeah and that there's something about like the thing that makes the least sense is meant to be like the most straightforward like financial argument right or headline yeah yeah and i think that like to me ties to the this question about um like animal production and capitalism and violence in food systems you know yeah so i want to i want to i'm glad you mentioned the the form right mm. it is like a news like a news column it's like a single column it takes up i mean in my ebook version it's like half of the yeah. e page Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's justified alignment, it does something that often happens in newspaper columns, which is it introduces these sort of gaps and white space. And mm-hmm. I thought that was so interesting because of the way that sort of historically white space has been used in poetry to create mm-hmm. sort of emphasis, um, to draw attention to e- either what's on the page or to the absences around mm-hmm. it. But in this case, it, the fact that you're sort of doing it within this this sort of restriction to begin with, it, there's a less obvious relationship between sort of intentionality emphasis mm-hmm. and uh, or between this sort of intentionality and what then gets emphasized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're sort of letting go of some control over what gets emphasized in the poem. Mm-hmm. And I was curious how that, how choosing that kind of like formal approach affected the way that you think about it and what it's saying. I think there's something about like the justified box that points toward that. Um, and by that, I mean, just like giving up uh, control over the end jam mm. line or the line break, you know? Um, but I think there's just like a lot of sort of subtle play and how I like rearranged this text. Mm. I would say that was like another piece of sort of how how the the materials came together, right? Is yeah, like how the line like s- sings, right? Um, and I wanted to make sure that each time it it turns over, it's not um, in the same way that I think all line breaks can like fracture and make new meaning. Like it does similar work. Um, and I I guess I tried to point to this maybe in this like first couplet, which has like a bet get mm. line. Yeah, I I guess there's also there's something about like the the density of the line mm. and the rolling over of text that points to a kind of urgency um, that is like present in our like news reporting or the rhetoric, like the rhetorical register of our news reporting, that there's like a density and collision of information that's going to then be forgotten and replaced yeah. with new, new language and new material. And so I think maybe that's also something this poem is thinking through, right? Like how do all these things exist at the same time? in yeah. such a small space and then they're gone um yeah. which sort of points back to that that epigraph from ezra pound aka some pig yeah right? so literature's news that stays so let's talk about that why include the epigraph it was mostly a joke yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to like corrupt a, a line from pound and then uh-huh. also not name him yeah <laughs> right though i don't know the lines literature's news that stays news is one of his like more famous yeah Excited moments um and so i was yeah interested in like erasing a piece of it and then taking out his name which i also think is like pretty common in like the practice of teaching pound like i think in a lot of english language like poetry classes they use a lot of ideas that come from pound without citing him right yeah because yeah. he's a fascist but like also his material is there 
Mm. So I, I don't know. I think there's probably like a more interesting way to engage with his legacy or engage with the legacy of horrible men who like mm. inform the practice that you're engaged in. I don't exactly know what that is, but maybe this is one <laughs> attempt of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also interested in headlines as a pandemic poem. And I wondered mm. if you could talk about it from that perspective in writing about the pandemic in this way. What were you hoping to to convey that you haven't seen or hadn't seen in other poetry about the pandemic? Mm. Dang. Yeah. I love that question. I think like COVID-19 in particular um, demonstrated on like a really like visceral and embodied way, the interconnectedness of like, all of our very fallible extractive and exploitive systems Mm. there's a way that i think it was easier to ignore you know folks working in pork plants and like how that connects to like the pork you may or may not be eating right um or just like uh like how shipping systems collapsed right or all of these different things Right. right so i think there's a way that the different materials in this like although they're not exclusively from the pandemic time, right? Because we got like the yippies in here yeah, and then some yeah. stuff like from 2018 and stuff. But I think there's there's a way of like formally framing the sort of like density of these new articles that that shows sort of how how interconnected all of these different uh, experiences and systems are. And right, that it's part of, that it's like the quote unquote, the pandemic, right? Is uh, a sort of like event and like even sort of a hyper object. But it also like comes from a, a tradition, right? Like how we yeah. navigate discordant uh, levels of like access, right? Who gets to stay home? Who has to go to work, right? Um, who's being supported? Even in this moment when like so many more people were were given like time and resources, that it's still like yeah. a, still part of this like deeply uneven, exploitative world that we live in. Yeah, I think it's like interested in sort of pairing these like headlines as these like little little flashes that point to larger systems of um of inequity join ksqd the second sunday each month for intersections hosted by seth shapiro intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune into Intersections Sunday evening at 6 here on K-Squid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is the award-winning queer Jewish poet Sam Sachs. Their latest collection, Pig, is a rich meditation on the pig as a lens through which to explore themes as wide-ranging as masculinity, fascism, Jewishness, and desire. Let's move to the last poem you've prepared for us, Miss Piggy. What can you tell us about it before you start? Yeah, this is just an ode to Miss Piggy. You know, big fan ever since childhood. Um, There were a bunch of uh, poems that were odes to famous pigs. (laughs) <laughs> that ended, didn't end up making it into the book. And I think this was one that I wrote largely because it was fun to read. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, sometimes as somebody who came out of like a spoken word tradition, I like had felt like a real divide between the poems that are like for the books that I make and the ones that are like are pleasurable to read. And so I mm. think a lot of this, a lot of this book was in, interested in sort of collapsing that space a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, how can you write a book about pigs without a poem for Miss Piggy <laughs> was also the other reason. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that yeah, this is that. This is that poem. Great porcine drag queen. 
you who grew erudite in the slaughterhouse shadow, eyelashes like black swords teased up to challenge heaven, eternal in your powdered foundation, refusing every day the knife's inevitable and unkosher ending. Be snouted fount of youth, seminal queer iconoclast, pearls to bed, pearls in the junkyard, pearls on television, diva of late night, of talk shows of prime time, door kicker for the non-conventional romance, shown us how to love across identities arbitrary as phylum and species bless that impossible coupling. How you took an entire frog inside you and remained the same bad pig. Who'd karate chop anyone dumb enough to disrespect? Ayow. What little queer wouldn't look upon you and be seen or saved or salved? You who never questioned you were destined for stardom. Oh, miss, miss. Oh, great swine demimond. Oh, dame pig. I'm yours till I end. You, my religion. How I understand us all now. We are ourselves and the hand inside that guides us. We who are given voice by that same spirit that gives voice to everyone you have ever loved. I really enjoy that. It's such a joyful poem. Yes. So you you begin this, the first, oh, the opening line of this is an ode to the great porcine drag queen. And I, mm-hmm. I clocked that in part because it's not the first time in this book that that, um, that sort of analogy or that connection between pigs and drag is made. So I was, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about that association and why it's such a salient and compelling one to you. Well, the first poem about a drag queen is because this drag queen, Mary Vice, out here in Oakland, did a drag number at Oak Lash in 2019 mm. that really laid me out. And so I think that that first poem is like more interested in like gender performance and anim- like performance of like animal or speciesness mm. and like what it means to like pervert like a multi-species like erotic like performance gesture in yeah. like the back yeah so that i think that that first poem is like interested in transgression in a lot of ways i think this one is sort of too but it's like thinking about miss piggy as just like a queer a queer icon mm. right um and the sort of like and drag right highlights the sort of performance of gender and there's like an over-the-topness that yeah. miss piggy like embodies um I feel like most of her fits are like how I would like to dress. Um, there's like an aspirationalness to like the Miss Piggy as like, you know, just somebody who <laughs> she's a girl boss. Girl, she's a girl <laughs> boss. Just yeah, very very powerful. You know, couldn't couldn't be me, but like aspire toward it. Yeah, and so I don't know. I think there's like I think drag sort of highlights both like power and transgression in a really exciting way and like and highlights the performativeness of like all gender expression you know and so i think uh that's where that opening line comes from um i'm gonna admit to something that i will not suggest that my readers necessarily do which is when i was reading this collection it occurred to me belatedly that given the number of sort of um queer male identities that are attached that are associated with animals that there might Mm. be one for pig (laughs) and so i googled it be careful <laughs> out there, people. Okay. Um, and one thing that that really struck me was that all of the sort of as- queer associations with pigs 
are about transgression in some way. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, cause, because there is so much sort of transgressive, your approach and in, in sort of to poetry in general is mm-hmm. so transgressive, mm-hmm. um, how that played into your selection of the pig as the, the sort of object or subject of this book. There are these three poems, Pig Bottom Looking for Something, mm-hmm. that run through the poem that is like in part autobiographical, but also like in part focusing on this like character of the figure of this yeah. identity that you're pointing to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how they speak, you know? So I think, yeah, that was like a large part of it. Um, I was also just talking to, there's like a leather slash fetish company called Nasty Pig, and I'm trying mm. to get a collabo going with them for this book. <laughs> we'll see if that ends up happening. Yeah, I think that's like a really central, central and salient, like connection, like one of the the central ones that I was interested in, like pig, pigginess and transgression, particularly in queer identity, right? And how like the pig can be that and also be like a kind of sort of militarized police figure, right? Yeah. Or how it can be like like men are pigs in that they like perform homogenous inherited patriarchy, right? Like that's such a pig pig thing to do. But then like there's the queer pig who like just takes a lot of loads right and is interested mm. in like like multiple complex like transgressive sexual desires and spaces right and then there's like the pig itself yeah so i think like there's the the thing that was most uh resonant when making this book is how all of those different affiliations and associations sort of rub against each other from yeah. poem to poem so another thing i wanted to point to and you sort of talked about this a little bit in your setup um Whereas the first two poems that you read here take on a more detached perspective, the tone in Miss Piggy is reverent, Mm. almost ecstatic. It's personal and it feels like it's meant to be performed, um, Mm. like you were saying. I'm wondering Mm. if you can talk a little bit about how you think about tone in your writing and what you're using tone to convey in particular in the three poems that you read here today. Mm. Yeah, you love that question. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of exclamation points in this poem, which points (laughs) for how how one might engage with it or read it. Yeah, I think this is also in an ecstatic tradition, right? I think, Mm. like, I love the ode as a kind of, like, song or sending up or celebration of something. And then usually either something, like, normative. Like, I love, like, that sort of, like, Neruda's tradition of, like, ode to socks, right? Mm. Or, like, the tradition of taking, like, a sort of unfixed cultural object and one that, like, might not be deemed as worthy of, of praise. And then, like, what happens when you when you sing to it, right? Or try to yeah. lift it up. And then draw out the connections between the object and your lived experience, right? Whether it's, like, a, like prop, whatever the proper noun is, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. When I perform this, I do like a call and response with the hiya. I don't know. Mm. Everyone seems hype about it. Everyone loves Miss Piggy, you know. <laughs> or most people love Miss Piggy. There's some There's some, some Miss Piggy haters. Around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, well, whatever. I'm not going to get into that here. But <laughs> there's deep, complex discourse around Miss Piggy for sure. You know, I think both of those other poems also have like a volta with and a, like autobiographical eye in them. Like the first mm. two I read, there's like a section in the second poem that's like thinking about suicidal ideation. That's also like takes a personal mm. a personal turn and like tries to connect that to like these various sort of archived histories of the pig. But I think like tonally quite quite different than this one, right? Which also has an eye that enters later, and also sort of points toward you know suicidal ideation right like one that's mm. like um like who like who wouldn't look upon you well little queer wouldn't look upon you and be seen or saved or solved right which points yeah. toward like that need for salvation right the need for saving right 
on the other side of that is like alienation and depression right yeah. i sort of picked these three poems at random so it's interesting to think of them in in conversation um but i think that it does a good spread of some of the sort of like tonal the tonal move that moves the book makes and also like what what materials are sort of addressed and unpacked throughout this collection well i think they also give you a a sense of the structure because mm. You chose one from the one from the beginning, one from the middle, and one from the end, whether it was intentional oh, or not. Right. So we do sort of get to see how you move through these themes about pigs. You know, I didn't even clock that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think all all three of them take on sort of cultural objects in one way or another, right? Yeah. And then I just what how they differ is like the sort of method of approach. So we're getting close to the end of the time that we have. But before we go, I wanted to ask, what's next for you? What are you working on these days? Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for asking. I have a novel coming out next summer that I'm just putting some cool. finished edits on. And this is yeah. your first novel, right? First novel, yeah. It's called You're Dead, Y-R-D-E-A-D. Um, and it's going to be out with Mick Sweeney's in August, next August. So just mm. about a year from now. So I just kind of am putting these two books to bed. And then I've got I've got a bunch of other law writing projects I'm working on. I'm working on this one book of poems called Discipline, which is my fourth book that's thinking about um, the history of disciplinarity and art forms. And so like each poem takes its form from a different art practice um, outside of literature. Then I got a novel, another novel I'm working on about um, a bookseller who falls in love with a ghost. It's like oh, an cool. interspectral <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bookstore romance. Just getting started on these other new projects. Um, but yeah, just handed in final edits for my novel like last week. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. A little nerve wracking, but exciting. Well, Sam Sachs, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for uh, wanting to talk about my book and for these really thoughtful questions. To learn more about Sam or their writing, visit their website at samsachs.com. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced and edited for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our mixing engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.